Okay, welcome back, everyone. So today we are joined by Krista Scott Dixon, PhD. Um, let me just give you a little bit of background on her. She's been teaching and coaching for 25 years and has helped thousands of students and clients learn, grow, and explore new possibilities for their lives. She is the former Director of Curriculum for Precision Nutrition, a global leader in coaching and nutrition. She is sought uh, after as a public speaker on topics like nutrition, women's health and fitness, emotional well-being, and the psychology of behavior change. Um, she is the author of several books and runs the website stumptuous.com. So she also has a, one of her books is a book called Why Me Want Eat. The subtext is fixing your food F aptitude. All right. So, so interesting. And I've known Krista for so long. She is amazing and so much wealth of um, experience and knowledge. So welcome, welcome, welcome. So great to have you here. Um, and so I remember as we were discussing um, possible topics for today. Some of the words that popped out at me as we were speaking were words like compassion, recovery, which you spoke about in a different talk that we had done together, which was so fascinating, um, and high performance, how all of it relates to high performance. So why don't I stop talking? Let me hand it over to you and just tell us a little bit more about what you feel is the overarching theme that that comprises of these these words that have popped out in our conversation? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think the thing I'm really interested in is this concept of what we call deep health. We came up with this idea uh, when I was working at Precision Nutrition. We didn't invent it, it, you know, because I think that human beings have had this holistic understanding of health forever. <laughs> but basically, it's this idea that health goes beyond just the body, goes beyond just symptoms, it goes beyond, you know, not being sick. It's really about this holistic experience of thriving. And so there's physical health, mental health, emotional health, uh, the health of your spirit or your soul, you know, how, you know, whatever you believe in soul wise, philosophical health, whatever you want to call it, right? There's your social health, the health of your relationships and your connections. And then there's your environmental health, which is like what's around you. And so, you know, and you can come up with other dimensions, it's really up to you how you want to think about it. But Ideally, what we want to understand this as is, is health operates in all of these different domains of our lives, and we are complete people, and we can't really separate out any of these things. And so what we're looking for is this multidimensional, multifaceted, interconnected experience of thriving. And that's something that really interests me because, you know, from my experience of coaching over many, many years, like it really kind of started to pique my interest. Like I started in, in the realm of nutrition and health and fitness. And then like, as I went deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole, I started noticing like this person doesn't have a problem with nutrition because people would come to me and they would say, I have a problem with nutrition. I have a problem with eating. I have a problem with working out, whatever. And the more I got into it, I was like, this person doesn't have a problem with nutrition. They have a problem with their partner, their stress levels, their daily routine, their sense of themselves, their ability to communicate, you know, it's like pulling the thread of a sweater and just like unraveling all of these strands and realizing like, this is all connected. But I think sometimes what happens is people go, oh, well, the problem is blah, blah, right? And then they, and they kind of call it like a small slice of something that they think is the problem. 
but really it's connected to all these other pieces. So for me, deep health is like this eternally interesting puzzle to solve and to explore. And then compassion kind of unites it because without compassion, you cannot thrive. Uh, you, you know, that's just how human beings are wired. We're social species. Uh, we have this like deeply rooted attachment system. And so compassion starts to become the key that unlocks everything. And so for me, that's just completely fascinating because it's not a magical drug. It's not a magical workout program. It's not a magical food. It's not a, a ritual incantation. It is compassion that really unlocks so much of what we think of as health and thriving in human beings. In your experience of working with people, how have people projected or taken action to increase their compassion for themselves, which then links to their capacity to per perform or their capacity to access fulfillment in their lives? What have you seen? Yeah, it's a great question. Some people can access it right away, right? If, if you help them make the link and you say, being self-compassionate is important, and they go, oh, okay, cool. And they, they sort of reach inside themselves and imagine a time that they felt compassion and then just slap it on themselves and they're good. Most people <laughs> are not like that because many of us were just raised in environments where there was no compassion. There was, you know, people didn't have compassion skills around us. Um, and so they're, they're a little bit stuck on how to do it. Or it feels like compassion is sort of a waste of time. You know, it's too soft. It's letting yourself off the hook. And that's really not what compassion is. Compassion is looking at something and saying, I see you're struggling. I see you're suffering. I feel into that. Doesn't mean I let you off the hook. Doesn't mean I don't have boundaries or it doesn't mean I, I don't see it honestly. And in fact, I think that you require honesty for compassion. You have to see clearly how someone is suffering and struggling. So with clients who have a hard time with self-compassion, we do this little exercise. I call it um, turning the garden hose on yourself. And the idea is think of someone or something else for whom you feel compassion just naturally, like your kid, but like, especially when they're young, like a cute little baby or a cute little puppy or just something that's kind of cute and helpless or vulnerable. Maybe it's your grandmother who's like 92 and she's four feet tall. You know what I mean? Like you have, there's almost everyone has someone or some animal in their life that sparks a feeling of compassion in them and you want to take care of them and it upsets you when you see them crying you don't want to see them suffering you know whoever this is and so i say okay like hold this person or animal or whoever it is in your mind and imagine them having a really hard time like crying or being sick or just suffering in some way and just feel like all the love and compassion that you have for them you want to take care of them whatever and then once you've kind of gotten that good feeling in your body for about 30 seconds you turn the garden hose on yourself, right? So you turn the compassion hose on yourself really quickly and you apply that self-compassion to yourself. You know, give yourself that feeling that's coming out of you for this other person. And sometimes it will only last a couple of seconds before people immediately clamp down on and say, I, I can't feel that for myself. Sometimes you'll get five seconds of compassion for yourself, 10 seconds, 30 seconds before people are like, nope. So we kind of go back and forth. You can imagine this like hose, right? Like you're turning the compassion hose on someone else and then you're turning it back on yourself. So we kind of go back and forth. And then when they've built up the compassion for someone else, we turn it back on themselves. So we go back and forth a number of times and I have them practice this and it does get easier with practice. The other thing I do is um, a little experiment, okay? For like a whole day, criticize the heck out of yourself. Like just every stupid thing you do, every mistake, every flaw, 
call it out, tell yourself what a you know sack of crap you are, like whatever, right? <laughs> then the next day, just take a day, it's a time-limited thing. Be super self-compassionate. Celebrate everything you do right. Good for you. Give yourself high fives. Be kind, be loving, be generous, you know. And people will often go along with this because it's only a day. And I'll say you can go right back to criticizing yourself after this day is over. At the end of the two days, you know, they take notes. Okay, how did it go? Well, self-criticism day sucked. <laughs> Self-compassion day, oh my gosh, I accomplished so much more than I expected. I felt a sense of ease. I felt way more relaxed in myself. Life just didn't freak me out as much. Okay, cool. Well, you know, that's your experiment. What do you think about how you might move forward? And once people experience it, uh, they're they're much more open to practicing it in future. Right. You know, as you were talking, I'm recalling some of my clients. I'm not going to mention any names. And a client, if you're listening, you know who you are. <laughs> um, who uh, compassion or self-compassion is a bad word. And, um, and the interesting thing is, they claim and their results demonstrate that for them to be really tough and nothing is ever good enough works as a strategy, right? And so I have a few, a few people um, who I work with who are like that. And I'm just wondering, how would you work with someone like this? Yeah, it's a really good Absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a significant problem among people that are high performers because they've convinced themselves, they've told themselves the story that this works. And it does up until a point. And with these folks, I say a couple of things. One is that having high standards, good for you. Like you're someone who is inspired to chase excellence. And I love that in you. Right, you're you know you're someone who seeks mastery. You're you're stretching the edges of human performance, right? So you kind of want to affirm all of the things that are great about that because there's wonderful things about that. But then I explain the neuroscience of what happens when we criticize ourselves, and basically a good way to think about it is it is the parking brake on optimal performance. So your tools will get you up to a certain point. Having high standards, being tough on yourself. That'll get you so far, but it will not get you to the level of excellence that you could get if that parking brake was off. Because you can still kind of drive the car with <laughs> the parking brake on, right? Um, or the, Even on fumes. That's right, that's right, exactly. But if you're someone who wants long-term excellence, you want to be doing this 10 years from now, 20 years from now. You want to have great relationships. You want to be like firing on all cylinders. This get tough on myself is not the way to do it because it shuts down creativity. It shuts down innovation. It shuts down problem solving because when we are, when we're under threat, right? So when we criticize ourselves, our brain perceives this as a threat and it doesn't know that the, that the call is coming from inside the house, right? <laughs> it just treats it as a, as a non-specific threat. Um, and by the way, social threat for a lot of people is much more powerful than physical threat. Um, we, we typically find social threat, like social exclusion, judgment, someone rejecting us or abandoning us. That's actually much more painful for humans in the long term. We experience it as much more distressing than a physical threat. So that's also worth knowing, right? A criticism is a social threat. It's very, very powerful. So, you know, when we are in a state of threat, 
we cannot activate our best self. It's like you you think about, you know, uh, like if you have a dog that's scared of thunderstorms, right? What do they do? They hide under the bed, they hunker down, they get really rigid. Um, threat makes us cognitively very rigid. We think in very rudimentary ways when we're threatened. We regress to old patterns of behavior. So if you're someone who seeks growth, or if you're trying to be a leader, or you're trying to navigate difficult situations that require a lot of innovation and cognitive flexibility, the threat of internal self-criticism shuts it down. And that's the problem. So if this thing was going to work, it would have worked, right? And it does work up to a certain point. But it's like, you know, if you want to go to the Olympics, eventually you're going to hit a level of performance where everyone is just as good as you. Everyone's just as genetically gifted. Everyone's trained just as hard. Everyone wants it just as much. So there has to be some other differentiator in the mix. And if you're holding yourself back with self-criticism, if your brain is dealing with this other threat on the side, you're you know, fighting battles on multiple fronts, then you're not going to perform optimally. And someone else who is giving themselves more ease is going to outperform you. And I mean, I, I don't know if you're aware of, of experiments where uh, like team building experiments in innovation, <laughs> the participants that consistently perform the best are five-year-olds. Uh, you know, when five-year-olds are pitted up against CEOs, the five-year-olds just crush it because they don't have that internal dialogue yet, right? They're just all about openness and let's try stuff and, you know, I'll put this here, you put this there. Whereas CEOs are like, I got to get one up on this other person, right? They're so conscious of their self-presentation, their performance. How am I doing? How am I stacking up? Oh, God, I sucked. <laughs> meanwhile, a five-year-old's outperforming them. So I think that really says a lot. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, so, um, how does this link with the theme that you spoke about in a different talk that we did, which, which I found so fascinating around this idea of recovery? So, uh, again, if I go back to some of my clients, um, to, to pause and, and spend time, and I'll let you talk a little bit more about it. It's so counterintuitive. It's like my foot has to be on the accelerator all the time. And so could you talk to us a little bit more about recovery and the role of that? Yeah. And this is something that a lot of high performers, you know, cringe at. They're like, recovery? Like, who has time for that? Right. But what we know from the science of stress and recovery is that, again, to perform optimally, if you want the high highs, you need the low lows. And what I mean by low lows is achieving a state of like deep restoration, deep calm, deep replenishment where you can go very, very still and you sleep very deeply and your mind is clear. Uh, if you want those high highs, you need those low lows. And, and so, for example, if you think about elite military operators in the field, when they are in you know, an operation, when, the, when it's time to go, their heart rate is high, all senses are firing, you know, their, high, their heart rate might be up to like 180 beats per minute, right? But as soon as they step off out of that operation, their heart rate drops, their, you know, um, signs of physiological activation drop. So they can drop themselves right back down, you know, to a heart rate, like they were just sitting in a lazy boy armchair all day, you know, within a few minutes, right? And that's what distinguishes, distinguishes the elite performers from the mediocre performers. And the mediocre performers live in what I call the crap zone, which is like, they're never really that high. They're never really that fully on. And they're never really fully off. And, you know, you can think of the analogy as someone who's like, 
when they're at work, they're kind of scattered, they're multitasking, they're answering emails while they're in a meeting. So they're not really paying attention to either. They're making a lot of stupid mistakes in both cases. And then they, when they go home, they can't really relax. They're checking their emails again or their messages, whatever. So they don't ever get the ends of the spectrum. So I think a lot of people convince themselves that they are high performers because they're living in this constant state of being physiologically activated, but they're not even achieving an optimum state of activation. It's just like this white noise. And when I present about it, I have graphs of like a curve, you know, an up and a down curve. And the crap zone is a very flattened up and down curve, never really on, never really off, never really focused and attentive and clear, never really relaxed. And that's not what you want. And I think that's what a lot of people have convinced themselves, you know, that walking around in this like stoop of adrenaline at all times, you know, that feels like doing something, but you're not getting the low lows that you need to truly perform. Oh, that's, this is so, I, I'm like salivating. This is so fascinating <laughs> to me. Really, so fascinating. You know, I'm so interested um, in the neuroscience of it, right? So what happens to the brain when you allow yourself, uh, as you call it, high highs, when you allow yourself to access the high highs and the low lows, right? As, a, as I'll call it, the player, and then as a coach, right, if we bring it back to the coach perspective, is is the capacity to engage with my clients that open up that possibility where my clients can access high highs and low lows for the sake of increasing their capacity to um, uh, achieve high-performing results. And for me, high-performing results – um, taken from the playbook of Kelly Poulos, is it's about results and fulfillment, not either or, right? It's not that I get the results and I'm exhausted um, and unfulfilled, but that I get the results and I grow, there's a sense of fulfillment, there's some form of contribution, et cetera, et cetera. So here's a question I have for you. Do you have a personal story um, around compassion? Do you have an experience that you've gone through yourself um, around compassion? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I guess what I would say is that my trajectory of compassion is very similar to most people that might be listening to this, which is that, first of all, I'd never heard of it because, you know, uh, I was raised Generation X, and basically, the way that we were raised uh, was like benign neglect, right? You're a latchkey kid. You've got your your house key around your neck on a string from about age six, seven, eight, nine, right? No one cares about your emotional needs. Like there's there's just none of like there was no concept of compassion in the seventies. Right? Like that's just not it. Just wasn't a thing. So I kind of like the first stage is like not even knowing that compassion is a thing, and then the second stage is like okay, I know compassion is a thing, and I try on giving it to other people, right? And so that was kind of like my first foray into teaching and coaching, you know, kind of looking at other people going, oh, they're having a hard time. I bet that I could have them, you know, give them less of a hard time in some way or another. And that, that started pretty early. But the concept of self-compassion arrived so much later in my life. And for me, the pivotal moment was I was competing um, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu 
And that's a, I mean, you want to talk about high highs. I have never had such a high, like you will never do anything as intense as fighting in your life because everything's activated. Someone's trying to hurt you. There's a timer going, there are loud noises. The form of fighting is very panic inducing, right? They might be trying to smother you, choke you, break your arm. Like it's just, it's freaking out on every front. It's very athletically demanding. You're hanging upside down. You're rolling all over the floor. You're jumping, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, I started competing and it was super high highs, but I did not get the low lows. And then I started pressuring myself. I started critiquing myself. Well, you know, I'm not doing this well enough. I'm not doing that well enough. And I remember this one tournament where I basically gave up the second I started. I showed up and I, and I was just so consumed with like self-critique that I just bombed out and I, and I, my, I just ran out of gas. I didn't have any energy in the tank. I couldn't think creatively. I just completely stopped. I just gave out. I could see it in my videos. Like I, <laughs> I, still, I still went through with the matches, but I was just like, ugh, I had no gas in the tank. And this experience was really pivotal for me because I quit the sport for a little while. I was like, I don't want to do this. It sucks. It's too stress producing. I kind of burned out on it. And then I was like, well, why did that happen? Because I used to love this. This used to be really fun for me. What what happened there? And I realized, and so I started, this is when I started learning about sports psychology and, and you know, this, how mindset really matters. Because I was all about the physical performance sport, right? I had my physical game locked down. I trained really hard and all the things, but I didn't spend time on the mental and emotional aspect of performance. So that was like the moment where I was like, oh, I see the mental and emotional game is hugely important so yeah from the, and then i discovered things like compassion focused psychotherapy and the more i used it with my clients the better i got better results i got and the better results they got and so it was just like unlocking 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 it was just this like constant series of like oh my gosh this works so much better that works so much better like it just you know coaching for me is now so i don't want to say easy but it kind of is because I stopped flinging and grasping and resisting and pushing and fighting and directing and all that kind of stuff. Now my main job is just to be a regulating presence. Yeah, I help you find direction. I'm a bit of a guide and a navigator, all that kind of stuff. But fundamentally, I don't have to rigidly control the situation or tell you that you suck in order to get results. And that's just like, we can just enjoy spending time together <laughs> as coach and client. It's so much more lovely and I'm not burned out. And that's, that's a huge thing. Yeah. You know, first thing, thank you so much for sharing us, uh, sharing with us that story. Um, as you were talking, um, it, 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 a lot of executives that I work with, my colleagues work with, uh, bur being burnt out is a common theme for many people. And it sounds like a similar pattern, which is I'm all in, go a thousand gazillion percent. So it's the pendulum goes extreme on this side, can't take it. So then I go extreme this side and I'm out of here. Right? So would you say it's a similar pattern? Yeah, yeah, very much. burnt out executives. Yeah. Very much. And it's funny because like at first people will endorse the go hard or go home ethos. And then you say, in a non-sarcastic way, well, how's that working for you? If we look back last year, last five years, last 10 years, because the long game is where it always shows up, right? I always play the long game as a coach and just in life. And so 
anything will work for a day <laughs> or a week, maybe even a year, maybe a decade. But, you know, I think most of us want longevity in our careers and we want to stay in the game. And, you know, as I'm aging, I tell uh, athletes, the goal of the game is to stay in the game because you can't play if you're sidelined. Right. And so as I as I age, I've changed things like my physical practices to ensure that I stay in the game. Now, am I winning the Olympics at age 49? Oddly enough, nobody's invited me, but I'm sure it's going to happen any day. <laughs> you know? But but really, the goal of the game is to stay in the game, whatever your game is. And, you know, and, and in leadership, I mean, leadership is a burnout minefield because, you know, one of the major correlations of burnout is having very high ideals being very committed to the work that you do, and then confronting reality. So the professions that have the highest rate of burnout are professions where ideals mash up against reality. Cops, nurses, teachers, social workers, all of these kinds of people have super high rates of burnout, and that includes coaches. So you have to understand how to keep yourself in the game. And compassion is one of the pathways to do that. Because you're no use if you, to yourself or anyone else if you're just obliterated. And so if you talk to people, you know, again, people will endorse like, ah, you got to go hard. And then you're like, okay, you know, first of all, can you see yourself doing this 10 years from now? Would you like to live exactly like this for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 right. years? And that's when people go, oh God. <laughs> like, I love how you say it, which is you said, play, how did you say it? You said, stay in the game, play so that you can stay in the game, whatever that game looks like. Ah, oh, love it. Honestly, Krista, I could talk to you forever. And for everyone to know, Krista is, we're, we're just scratching the surface. You know, there's so much breadth and so much depth um, in, in your knowledge. And it has been amazing speaking to you. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> 